0: Lectures to his posting in October 1517 of the 95 Theses, uh, which really is uh, October 31st uh, today. In the Protestant Church, we call Reformation Day. It was All Saints' Eve, uh, and still is, but uh, we also call it Reformation Day uh, because that is uh, officially, if you will, the, the, the start of the great epoch known as the Protestant Reformation. We looked at Luther's inner life and inner progress towards justification by faith alone. We went through his Anfechtung two weeks ago. Last week, we saw that that process, as he was coming out of the Psalms into Romans, particularly in the first chapter, in the 17th verse, uh, into his paradise, as he called it in the Tower Experience. The The two words, if you remember, that were the crucial words were justitia Dei the righteousness of God uh, in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith that's the great uh, reformation discovery of luther and it wasn't his alone but he's he's the principal figure that we tend to look at uh, so thunderous i suppose you could say was his career uh, a movement from the medieval into the modern world really can be marked in in that lifespan of Martin Luther and in his person, in fact. So we were looking at, doctrinally speaking, when you think of the watchwords of the Reformation, we were looking at uh, his discovery little by little of sola fide and, and within sola fide, in that context, solus Christus. Faith, faith alone justifies, but it is not... A faith that is alone, that can't save, but the faith, as he said, that hides itself under the wings of Jesus Christ. So, Solus uh, Christos uh, necessarily comes with Sola Fide. Well, this morning, uh, as we're looking at the road to Worms, which occurs in 1521, those years from 1517 to 1521 is a gradual progression, painful progression, of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. So we called it the title this morning, Sola Scriptura, On the Road to Worms. We're going to see the development of that doctrine. The first two uh, solas were inward, if you will, in the life uh, of the mind and the heart of Luther. And this is more of an outward conviction that he's he's uh, being impressed with because of the assertions of Catholic authority from the Pope to the Council's and so forth, and he's resorting to one and to the other in hopes of finding success for his 95 Theses, and he's not finding it in the Church. He expected to find some support from the Pope. He did not. He expected the councils might support him. They did not, uh, historically speaking. And so he, he was thrust onto the ground of sola scriptura, which was not something he would have maintained earlier on. So it's fascinating to watch this progress. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So we're looking at a lot of action... A lot of historical narrative. That's going to be fairly face, fast-paced, not only because of the nature of and the intensity of that progression, but because we have a lot of ground to cover in a short amount of time. So, bear with me if I'm talking a little faster uh, than usual, the whole hour long. Uh, but I think the mood the, the the mood allows for that. So that's what we're looking at now. Second Timothy. We'll open with this uh, a few verses from the Apostle Paul to uh, his young protege, I suppose, if you will, disciple, Timothy, the young man Timothy. We're looking at 2 Timothy 1, verses 7 through 10, which captures something of the the, the, the growing boldness and audacity, even if you will, uh, in handling the gospel that we're going to see in the life of Martin Luther this morning. There's an incredible boldness there that that I don't... Hesitate to call apostolic. Luther was not an apostolic in the biblical sense. He was not inspired in his words in an infallible way. But there's no question that that he was appointed uh, divinely so to accomplish the things that did actually take place in those times, and that we're still reaping the fruits of today. All right, uh, verse seven, Second Timothy chapter one. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. And of a sound mind, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest. By the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Amen. Let's open in prayer. Holy Father, be with us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I trust everyone has their handouts. And you've got Luther's timeline there, which just to note that we're looking we're, our primary interest this morning. All of these things won't be mentioned, uh, but our primary interest is the year 1518, 19, and then 21. Those years we're covering, and, and the, the first event of note is Augsburg in October of 1518, Luther at Augsburg. The second meeting or disputation is at Leipzig in July of 1519, and then thirdly, Luther at Worms in April of 1521. Those are the three main episodes that we're going to quickly move through this morning. So hopefully we'll be able to cover everything, which is our goal. So beginning with October 31st, 1517, uh, Luther posted those theses, and his main concern in those 95 theses is the, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine or sacrament, I should say, of penance. That was his, his main concern. Now, buried within the doctrine or the, 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 the sacrament of penance is primarily this, this practice of preaching indulgences, selling indulgences in order to, to relieve souls of the torment and the years that they were destined to spend, or who their loved ones were already spending in in purgatory. So when we come to purgatory, and then its concomitant doctrine, the treasury of saints, those two doctrines are buried in the preaching and the selling of indulgences. So we've got the sacrament of penance underneath indulgences, which were a major part that came into play with that doctrine of penance, or sacrament rather. And then purgatory and the treasury of saints. Those were the things that Luther was addressing, uh, nay, attacking uh, intensely in the 95 Theses. Now, if you have last week's uh, handout, which you may or may not, but it's okay if you don't, uh, on the bottom, I did say last week at the close that we would look at a few of these theses. We're only going to look at one, actually, uh, and that's number 62, which is the last one, the very last line on last week's handout. Number 62 of the 95. The true treasure of the church, says Luther, is the most holy gospel and the glory and grace of God. The true treasure. he He, he chose that word carefully. He's making reference to the claim of the medieval church of the treasury of saints. And he's making a contrast there and saying it is the gospel, which... Which he had discovered. Uh, incidentally, I just want to mention above that the picture. I didn't. I didn't note this last week, but that that picture on the left, bottom, is is a, a woodcut engraving by by the famous Gustav Doré. You may have seen his engravings; are they're, they're fantastic. Uh, this is his engraving of Purgatory. So that's if you were wondering what that was all about last week. That's a, that's a, his his kind of picture in his mind of at least one place one place in purgatory. So, the true treasure of the church, getting back to the text here of the Theses, 62, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. This this thesis, there were many that were a, a deep offense, virtually every one, to the Catholic Church, but this was the real uh, attack on Rome, that Rome could not abide, because it was clear he was attacking the doctrine of, of the treasury of the saints. Luther was saying the true treasury is is not Rome's vast reservoir or vast network of creaturely merits. That's what the claim was from Rome. Luther was saying, no, that's not the true treasury uh, which you are saying is to be dispensed at the pleasure and the will for a price of Rome, of the Pope. You pay a price, Now, you can have a certain amount of pardon. This was sheer uh, crash mercantilism in Luther's view. Rather, his claim in this number 62, implicit in it, and more plain, explicit in others, was that Christ alone, crucified and exalted, is given freely by the will, not of Rome, but the will of God himself. You, you, You think of the verse of the Apostle Paul in Corinthians of God is Christ made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's a tremendous verse, and that was Luther's emphasis. It is in Christ, it is all of Christ, it is exclusively Christ, Christ himself. He's the treasure. He is the treasure. Nothing that has anything to do with the creature. All right, so that was the, the 95 Theses. Uh, the storm was about to break, the uh, in a very real sense. For five years now, up to, uh, the posting of the thesis, he had been in the relative quiet of the classroom, teaching through first, uh, Psalms and then Romans, and then he moved into Hebrews and Galatians, which is on your timeline there. You can see when he tackled those books. And these are all readable today. You can, you can, you can find these sources. And it's fascinating reading because you see him, him in the, in the, in the throes, if you will, of fresh and new discoveries of the gospel. There's so much power in it. But now we have the sudden commencement of Luther's career as a reformer. It begins right here and right now. During this time, between the posting of the Theses and as we come into the next year, this is when Melanchthon appears. This is when he's been invited to Wittenberg. So this, this storm is brewing And Melanchthon comes right into it and meets Luther and Luther him for the first time. And as I said, they form a lifelong friendship. And we'll hear much more of Melanchthon as well as Luther. Luther was summoned to appear pretty quickly uh, in the next year, in 1518, um, at the end of the year, in August, at Augsburg. This is in Germany. And uh, the reason he was called here in Germany was largely due to... uh, the concern of the, the, uh, elector of Saxony, Frederick the Wise, he, among with a number of people we're going to mention this morning, you can find in that first week's handout, in that, in that, uh, mosaic of all of those pictures. Frederick the Wise of Saxony was very jealous for Luther. Uh, Luther had actually been summoned to Rome by the Pope himself. Uh, that, that was like a death sentence at this point because of what he had written. Frederick said, and this is the beginnings of nationalism in in a political sense, and they blend together with the religious concerns of the Reformation. Uh, Frederick said, no no Italian monarch is going to call one of my citizens out of my state and do what he wants with him. He's my subject. He's my citizen. And uh, so Frederick the Wise immediately began this this, uh, campaign of protection of Luther, and so uh, the way that it worked out was that Luther would indeed be called and have to answer for, uh, his, his looming heresy, but it would be in, within the protection of, uh, Germany itself. He wouldn't be sent off to Rome. Even still, uh, the fate of John Huss, the heretic, who had been burned in 1415, a hundred years earlier, almost exactly, at the Council of Constance, his fate, John Huss's, Loomed very large because Luther knew that he was entering that same kind of territory. Uh, nonetheless, he said he was going to go. Nothing was going to stop him. But he said, I clearly saw my grave ready. And, and then he added this. What a disgrace. All I could keep thinking is what a disgrace I'll be to my poor parents. Uh, you know, they raise this man to become a great person. And then he ends up being uh, burned in disgrace and ignominy. And uh, so he was thinking of his parents and the shame he would bring on them. But he was resolved, in spite of all of this, to appear. And so he did. In Augsburg, on October 12th, uh, before Pope Leo X, he was the pope at the time, his legate, who was a a man named uh, Thomas de Vio, he was a cardinal in the Catholic Church. Uh, We we know him not so much by his official name as much as Cajetan. That's that's the name that he goes by in history. Well, Cajetan and Luther faced off. It was a fairly private meeting. Uh, the two of them them across the desk between them, talking about these things. Uh, Cajetan began by citing the, the papal decree by Clement VI back in 1343 um, on the treasury of saints to show that this is, this is given down by the authority of the Pope. So this is not something that you're free to accept or, or deny. You, you don't have that freedom. Here you have a statement," said Cajetan. "By the pope, you must therefore retract." Well, Luther uh at the outset realized that he was being put in a very dangerous position. Uh there was no preliminary, suddenly he was just point blank said, "You either need to deny what you've said or you need to deny what the pope has said. That's your choice." And Luther was not really prepared for a, such an immediate fork in the road uh, in the road. So so he, he Kind of stalled, he said, I am not conscious of going against scripture or the fathers or the decretals or right reason. But he he was, in fact, going against the decretals that had, as it had just been quoted to him. He knew he didn't agree with it. He saw there was no way out. Uh, and so now he began to wax bold when K.J. Ten insisted that he needs to make a choice. And so he was kind of pushed into the corner, uh, he felt like he was fighting for his life, and so he, he began to wax bold. And <laughs> this, this waxing bold just gets greater and greater and greater. It is like the sun rising on a dark and stormy morning and dispelling the clouds. In Luther's, I'm not, I, I mean certainly outward, but inwardly, in his, in his own bosom, there's this, this light of the gospel that gives him this boldness that is just rising. And I, again, I don't hesitate to say that this was, this was the unction of the Spirit of God in a man. This is what Luther now said. I am not so audacious that for the sake of a single obscure and ambiguous decretal of a human pope I would recede from so many and such clear testimonies of divine scripture. Cajetan responded, "Scripture itself must be interpreted and the pope is the interpreter. The pope is above a council, above everything in the church." This was too much for Luther, and so, again, he, he increased his verbiage as Cajetan was doing. His holiness, says Luther, abuses the Scripture. I deny that he is above Scripture. The Pope is not above the Word of God, but he is below it. Just, just so clear and unambiguous. Well, we're beginning, even at this point, to, to, to see and to witness the development in Luther's mind of this Reformation, this great Reformation doctrine of Sola Scriptura, we're seeing how it's taking place. It wasn't, it wasn't just kind of dreamed up in the minds of men at leisure, uh, you know, in their so-called ivory towers. They weren't just thinking intellectually and theoretically. It was, it was pressed out—not just Luther, but Calvin and Farrell and Lefebvre and Zwingli. It was pressed out of them uh, in a very painful way. In, in their own exodus, from the Roman Catholic thraldom to idolatry, it, it was, to put it in other words, this exalting, this idolatry, which is what I'm calling it, is, is putting the word of the creature above the word of the creator. That is idolatry. In that case, says Luther, if we put the word of, the, of a man above the word of God, which the church is doing with the word of the Pope, He is a creature, not the creator. In that case, if we do that, he says, Scripture perishes and nothing is left in the church save the word of man. Very well said, Martin. Well, the face-off ended very abruptly. It wasn't very long. It ended with this ultimatum by Kajatan. He said, retract or return no more. Luther quietly got up, he bowed, and he walked out of the hall. And uh, that night, hearing that there, there were rumors in town that he was going to be arrested and uh, taken by force back to Rome, uh, Luther, with the help of friends, escaped by night through the city wall. There were watchers. Uh, everybody was, was looking out, wanting to keep Luther uh, pinned in. But he escaped with the help of friends, made it back safely to Wittenberg. And... Uh, Now he set himself to study the long history. He he was becoming a a scholar in Roman Catholic theology. If he hadn't been already, he was now going to study the decretals and the councils. Meanwhile, a new confrontation was being arranged in the city of Leipzig. And this would be against a a renowned theologian of, of Rome who was named John Eck. John Eck. And so to Leipzig in July of 1519... Luther came for his second confrontation. This time he came not alone, but with two of his colleagues from Wittenberg, uh, two fellow professors. Andreas Karlstadt was one who had preceded, he was there before Luther, and with Philip Melanchthon, the young Philip Melanchthon who came also, who had just been there for about a year by now. The hall was full of spectators this time, very different atmosphere, one, one of the young men who came, presumably a student of Luther's and Melanchthon's, uh, came and was witnessing the whole affair, and he wrote down virtually everything he saw. So we have this primary account. It's really fascinating, uh, not just what went on, but, but descriptions of the man. And so this is what this young man said of Karlstadt. He was short. He said, more than this. I'm just picking out just a, little, a few tidbits. He was short with, with the complexion of a smoked herring. Melanchthon, he looked at Melanchthon. He already knew Melanchthon. He said, you, you would say that Melanchthon is a mere boy, but in understanding, learning, and talent, he's a giant. Well, we already knew that from, from other descriptions that we've had of him. Of John Eck, as, as this young man looked at Eck, he said his whole face reminded one more of a butcher than a theologian. And then at last, Luther stepped forward to face Eck. So there's the two of them. Karlstadt had already been debating with Eck, uh, very sub-par, below par. Uh, Karlstadt's memory was not so great. He was constantly flipping through the stack of books that he had, fumbling, trying to find something to respond to Eck. And so finally he retreated and Luther stepped up and he was the man everyone was waiting to see. Uh, this is the description of Luther and this is in your handout. <laughs> Martin is of middle height, emaciated, from care and study so that you can almost count his bones. He is in the vigor of manhood and has a clear, penetrating voice. His knowledge and understanding of the Holy Scriptures is unparalleled. He has the Word of God at his fingers' ends. He knows Greek and Hebrew sufficiently to judge of the interpretations. A perfect forest of words and ideas stands at his command. In conversation, he is pleasing and affable. There is nothing harsh or austere about him. He displays firmness and always has a cheerful air, no matter how hard. His adversaries oppress him. It's just a wonderful description uh, of the inner and the outer man to some degree. It wasn't always true, this last statement, uh, that he has a cheerful air no matter how hard his adversaries press him. As we'll see in a few weeks, um, he could grow very sour and uh, very unchristian-like sometimes in his demeanor towards fellow Christians who didn't agree with him on what he considered to be vital points. So there's an unlikable side of Luther. It's important for us to know Lest, lest we begin to idolize a man that is worthy of so much praise. He truly is. But, but he, as they say, of every man, had feet of clay. Uh, he, he was a desperate sinner. In fact, his very final words, I think, which we hear quoted from the pulpit from time to time. We are all beggars. This is true. Right before he died. Uh, so he knew. He knew he was a sinner. Uh, battled it as Calvin did. Battled his temper. Calvin had a tremendous temper, uh, which could be unruly, that he battled against his entire life. So, uh, perhaps this is an encouragement to us when when we realize that we do not have complete victory over our own vices, that we know we will on that great and glorious day when we see Jesus as he is and become like him. Because, of course, Jesus never had uh, a temper that, that overcame him. Naturally, he had a human temper, but mortified through and through. All right, Eck was aware as this disputation began of Luther's vulnerable point as, as he was familiar with the proceedings uh, at Augsburg against Cajetan. And so Eck honed right in on this weak point right away. He said to Luther, there is in the church a primacy. It is a monarchy which ascends step by step up to God. What a monster the church would be if it were without a head. Of course, he's referring to the Pope, when he refers to the head of the church. Well, Luther says, uh, when, De- when Dr. Eck says the universal church must have a head, he says, well, and of course Luther is thinking of Christ and Eck is thinking of the Pope. Uh, it's interesting how language can be like that. I'm thinking of two things, using the same words, in the same language. Uh, Eck-, Eck responds then, well, then I should like to know who it can be if it is not the Roman pontiff. Luther says, the head of the church militant is Christ himself. Not a man. Not only a man, we, we should add, which Luther would have. Uh, I believe this, says Luther, on the testimony of God's word, which says he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. We cannot see our head, and yet we have one. He's exalted and on high, and ruling and reigning from there. Eck says, Eck was beginning to realize at this point that, that uh, in terms of the knowledge of Scripture, he was no match for Luther. Uh, and so he kind of shifted and, and tried to associate Luther with heretics of the past. So more of an ad hominem attack with, as far as associations go and not the substance of the argument. He knew that he couldn't win that against Luther. So this is what X says next. I see you are following the, the damnable and pestiferous, there's a good word, pestiferous errors of John Wycliffe, who said, it is not necessary for salvation to believe that the Roman church is above all others. And besides, you are espousing the pestilent errors of John Huss. There's that name again, John Huss. Well, up to this point, Luther had accepted Rome's verdict on Huss the heretic. He didn't really know too much about Huss yet. Again, he was on this learning curve that was tremendous. And so he kind of hemmed and hawed over that because he didn't want to be associated with with Huss. Uh, but as the morning session continued, his mind began turning. He was thinking about Huss. What did Huss actually teach? What did he actually believe? So during the lunch hour, there was a break. He raced over to the university uh, library and uh, he began to study as quickly and rapidly as he could the proceedings of the Council of Constance from 1415. 15. And then in there, Luther's mind was changed about Huss. He realized that I am more or less a Hussite. This is, this is a great and a biblical Man, so the assembly reconvened at two o'clock, and Luther stepped forward and said, "This among the articles of John Huss, I find many which are plainly Christian and evangelical, which the universal church cannot condemn, because they are the truth." Well, a murmur immediately rose in the room, much like a courtroom at this point. There was this 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 murmur, and it was clear that people, whoa, you know, he's he's saying something that is. It's very dangerous. Uh, Eck, in fact, arose and he shouted at him, You are heretical, erroneous, blasphemous, presumptuous, and seditious. Luther kept on. I assert, said Luther, that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err. And he's referring specifically here to the Council of Constance, which was wrong to condemn John Huss. A council cannot make divine right. Councils have contradicted one another. Very sensible thing to say. Well, previously at Augsburg, Luther had denied the authority of the Pope. You you remember that. Now, here at Leipzig, he was denying the authority of councils. So these are the two great authorities in the Catholic Church that could not be contested. And Luther was now repudiating them both. Not that they had no authority, but that in the face of the word of God, contradicting what Pope or council said, their authority was null and void. That's the point. The supreme, ultimate authority to which everything must come to be judged is word for word what has come out of God's mouth. This is what Luther says, and and this interview now is almost ended. A simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope and a council. Neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For the sake of Scripture, we should reject Pope and councils. That could only conclude, be then to me as a heathen and a publican. So he's condemning him then and there. And with this, the disputation ended. Luther returned to Wittenberg, waiting to see what was going to happen next. He quietly resumed his pastoral and his university university duties, teaching, preaching, going back to the normal life, but realizing that this, this storm cloud was... Coming right over his head and was about to break and he didn't know what to expect well first half of the next year 1520 all was quiet relatively speaking and then suddenly Rome struck in June summer of the year 1520 the 15th of June uh, the Pope published the Exsurge Domine this is this was a, a bull of excommunication straight from the Pope uh Exurge Domine is simply the Latin terms for the first two words of what we read in English. Arise, Lord, or arise, O Lord, which I'll read here uh, very briefly. Arise, O Lord, this is what the Pope says. Judge thy cause. A wild boar, that's Luther, has invaded the vineyard, thy vineyard. Arise, O Peter, arise, O Paul, arise, all ye saints and the whole universal church, whose interpretation of Scripture has been assailed. We can no longer suffer the serpent to creep through the field of the Lord. The books of Martin Luther are to be examined and burned. Anyone who presumes to infringe our excommunication and anathema will stand under the wrath of Almighty God and of the apostles Peter and Paul. I find that a little humorous at the end, as if the wrath of Almighty God is not enough, they have to add Pope has to add Peter, the wrath of Peter and Paul. Luther was given, in this bull, 60 days to recant. In the absence of a recantation by Luther, within 60 days, he would be an irrevocable heretic under the sentence of death. Instead, Luther took up his pen and began to write something like a madman. He began putting out, uh, th- actually, three treatises, and they're listed in, in order in your handout, uh, in rapid succession, following this bull, an address to the Christian nobility the Babylonian captivity of the church and the freedom of a Christian. Uh, you can, you can order these today, uh, in, in, in a book called The Three Treatises. These are his three first treatises of this year, and they're, each one of them are very good. The freedom of a Christian, or the freedom of a Christian man. I just put a short excerpt on your handout there, which is just a gem. It's, it's so wonderful. We won't take time to read it, but it's there for you to read in your spare time. Well, these books spread like wildfire. They were published. Spread like wildfire throughout Europe, through Switzerland, France, uh, certainly Germany, uh, rushing like a flood, even into England, across the English Channel, where men like William Tyndale, a young William Tyndale, got a hold of them and began reading them. Tyndale is, is another story altogether, which is intimately related with the story of Luther, and uh, tremendous. Uh, Tyndale is just one of the great, great, great men in the whole history. Of, of the world, without a doubt. Well, precisely 61 days later, so, so he, he's, he's expired. By one day, the students and the faculty gathered at Wittenberg. Melanchthon had called them together at the wishes of Luther. And here comes Luther and Melanchthon out to a big bonfire. And Luther takes, and, and I'm sure many of you are aware of this already, he takes the papal bull in his hand and he throws it into the fire. And he says, since they're burning my books, I will burn theirs. <laughs> you, know, you get chills uh, just recounting this in your mind. Well, now, with Wycliffe and with Huss, Martin Luther was a heretic of the church. Irrevocable. To the next imperial diet, Luther was called, this is Worms, in April of 1521. Uh, the, new, the new Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, he was just a youth of 20 years old, pretty close in age to to Melanchthon, uh, he granted Luther a safe conduct to come to the city of Worms in April of 1521. Well, everyone had known Huss had been granted a safe conduct and he never left the city because he was burned right there. And so, again, images of Huss are coming up for Luther and his friends. His friends were more, more worried visibly than Luther was. Luther was just, just uh, I mean, he was like clad with spiritual armor at this point. He says, this is what Luther says, If Caesar calls me, God calls me. He lives He lives and reigns who saved the three youths from the fiery furnace. And if he will not save my head, it is not worth saving. It is worth nothing compared with Christ. He would enter worms, Luther said, even if there were as many devils as shingles or tiles on the rooftops. And so... He prepared to make his way to Worms. Melanchthon says at this point, I just I just love this. He says, Every time I contemplate Luther, I find him constantly greater than himself. And that I mean this makes me think of again of, of, of biblical men. You think of men like Moses, who was a sinner, and we can read about his his sin of impatience with the people of Israel, which we can appreciate. Nonetheless, it was a sin as God denominated it for which he could not enter the the promised land. Uh, But he was was a man that was greater than himself. God had made him so. Or you think of Daniel or Joseph. Or you think of Stephen uh, in the book of Acts there before the Pharisees, as he was about to be stoned. And he's giving this marvelous speech and then seeing the heavens open and Christ there exalted. Uh, Here's a man that's greater than himself because God is making him so. And this is what we're seeing this in the person of Luther. And Melanchthon was recognizing it there, there. Well, you remember Luther's years of trembling. We've already talked a lot about that. And, and now we see this intrepidity. Luther, in fact, he says this many years later, just very shortly before his death, when he was recounting, he said back then, he said, in those months and years, I was undaunted. I feared nothing. And then he says this. He didn't credit it to himself. He said, and this is the, the title of, of, of this. I, I think it's the. Title of this morning. God can indeed render a man intrepid at any time. Such a great, great quote. I mean, we we could put a quote like that up, you know, on the on our our doorpost as we walk out out to go to work every day. It's, It's just it's God's work. And and we can't predict it, but when God does it, He does it. And no man, no man can shut the door that God opens. Well, Trembling before God, we see these two things in Luther, and they're not they're not unrelated. Trembling before God is the root and the spring of intrepidity, of fearlessness before men. It's a biblical principle. Well, this is what he writes to his old mentor, Stalpitz, at this point, who was beginning to shrink from the fight. He was concerned that Luther was going too far at this point. He was a peacemaker, uh, which is not wrong to be. Blessed are the peacemakers, but there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. Uh, Staupitz was veering towards peace while Luther was veering towards war and so this is what Luther writes to Staupitz who he loved with all his heart he says this is not the time to cringe but to cry aloud when our lord is damned reviled and blasphemed my father speaking to Staupitz my father the danger is greater than many think now applies the word of the gospel he who confesses me before men him will i confess in the presence of my father Quoting the words of Christ. So, crucial moment. On the morning of April 16th, the showdown was about to begin. Luther arrived at the Gate of Worms. The historian J.H. Uh, Merle Dabinier, who wrote just the, the, the best history on the Reformation, very lengthy. This is what Dabinier says of Luther right at this time as he's approaching the Gates of Worms. He was a prodigy of wisdom to some, to others, he was a monster of iniquity. All the city longed to see him. Even his greatest enemies were struck with the boldness of his manner, the joy and the power of his language, which gave this simple monk an irresistible authority. And again, it was it's the authority of God that God is clothing him with at this time. Next day, the 17th, Luther made his appearance in the hall before the emperor, who was there himself, the young 20-year-old Charles V., all the gathered German princes uh, were, were gathered there. They're waiting to see. They're full of anticipation. There's electricity in the air. And this really is the historical great moment. On the table, there was a table in the middle of the hall. There were a pile of books on them. They were all books that Luther had written in the previous year. Two questions were asked by the examiner. Are, your, are these books yours, Martin Luther? And secondly, are you prepared to retract the opinions? Will you retract the opinions that are in them? Well, uh, much like Augsburg, this, this, this took him by surprise because immediately he was being forced. He thought he was coming to a debate of some kind or other. That was the impression that he had had. Uh, rather, it was like he was immediately under a criminal trial. And that, that was the intention. But that was what he had not expected. So as far as the books, that was easy. Yes, I, he looked at them, inspected them. Yes, these are my books. I have written them all. But as to the second question, will you attract your opinions in them? He, he realized this was like a do or die moment. And, and since he wasn't, he was caught off guard, uh, and he, he retreated a little bit. He wasn't sure what to do and he began sweating, uh, started becoming nervous. He said, I beg you, give me time to think it over. And so he was given 24 hours, uh, A recess from the court, if you will. Uh, 24 hours, think it over, come back, be prepared to answer. That night, in his room, he prayed this prayer. And the only reason we know it is because in the adjoining room, one of his friends and supporters were there and his friend could hear him through the wall. This is, this is Luther's prayer in brief. O oh, Almighty, Almighty and everlasting God, how terrible is this world? It opens its mouth to swallow me up, and I have so little trust in Thee. O oh, God, help me. I have nothing to do here, nothing to contend for with these great ones of the world. But the cause is thine. It is a righteous and eternal cause. O oh Lord, help me. For the sake of thy well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield, and my strong tower. This is... its just hardly have words to describe this. It's particularly... When you contrast it with just a few short years before, when, as we read in his Tower experience, when he said, I did not love, nay, rather I hated the just God. And you see him now, hiding under the wings of Christ, in the truest sense of the word. This was the source of his success, right here. It wasn't because he was just naturally, although he did have a naturally aggressive personality, he was shrinking back like every other human being will, when left to our own strength. And he he knew he had nothing. He was insufficient. And this was the source of his strength. He was calling out, oh God, help me. Well, the next day, the sun arose, the 18th. This is the great day. Uh, Late in the day, he was summoned back again. All were poised in the hall to see what was going to happen to this great conclusion. Martin Luther, the examiner, addressed him. Yesterday you begged for a delay. It has now expired. Now, therefore, reply to the question, will you defend your books? Well, Luther's answer was chopped up a little bit. Uh, he said, well, there's many different works. There's many different kinds. So, I, I, it's not easy just to give a straight yes or no answer because, I mean, some of my books, the enemies, my enemies can't find fault with them. And if I were to retract these, I would be denying the truth. And I can't do that. But then there's other books. And, uh, well... Uh, Yeah, some are against the papacy, papacy, some are against the sacraments. But all I ask is that you prove from Scripture that these are wrong. And I'll retract every error. All you have to do is have resource to, or recourse to, the Scripture. And I'm happy to recant. He, He was sweating profusely by now. You have not answered the question, was the response. I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Will you or will you not retract? And now, Luther began to arise, standing erect, looking straight ahead. He said these these very historic words. I cannot submit my faith to Pope or councils because it is clear they have frequently erred and contradicted themselves. Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not retract for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, Amen. And that was the end of the whole matter. Luther seemed to seal his own fate with his own hand. Uh, the emperor was urged to ignore the safe conduct at this point, just as Huss's had been ignored. Uh, the Rhine, his counselor said, should receive his ashes as it received those of Huss a century ago. But Charles kept his word. Uh, Mainly because like like Herod with John the Baptist, he had given his word and he wasn't going to go back on it in front of so many witnesses. Uh, Luther was permitted to exit Worms while they deliberated his fate. And uh, his fate is is somewhat laid out in this edict of Worms that was now uh, become a permanent part of history from uh, the Diet. We, Charles V, to all electors, princes and prelates... The Augustine monk, Martin Luther, has rushed like a madman on our holy church and attempted to destroy it. This man, who is in truth not a man, but Satan himself under the form of a man, has collected into one stinking slew all the vilest heresies of past time. Upon the expiration of his safe conduct, we forbid you to harbor the said Luther, to conceal him, to give him food or drink, or to furnish him with any help whatsoever, to seize him wherever you may find him, to bring him... Before us without delay. That was the Edict of Worms. Well, we're going to end there. Next week, we're going to move back to Melanchthon and Zwingli and Lefevre and Farrell and then back to Luther again. So, um, uh, that's what we have to look forward to next week. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the great things of Jesus Christ, uh, which we have witnessed somewhat this morning and prepare to hear again in the coming hour. Be with us for Jesus' sake. Amen.